Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for waking us up this morning. Lord, so that we could gather with your bride and worship. Lord, we thank you for our worship this morning so far in song and in confession and in liturgy. Lord, we thank you for the words that David spoke to us a moment ago, Lord. God, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the work of Isaiah. And Lord God, we pray that as we consider this word together this morning, that you would open our minds and our hearts to believe and to understand what you have inspired. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today, it's obvious if you're looking around the room and you've been coming to Christ Community even just for a few weeks that we begin a new season, right? We begin a new season in the Christian year, but we are also beginning a new year in the Christian calendar. So, while we are still waiting on the new year in our secular calendars, it is our new year in the church, So it would not be inappropriate for all of us to wish one another a happy new year. So happy new year. It is a new year. But Advent does, it kicks off a brand new year in the Christian season, in the Christian calendar. And so in a very real sense, what we are able to do is we are able to start anew as we would every secular year. However, the difference between a life lived and all of our lives are lived adhering to the secular calendar. But the difference between living a life that is adhering to the secular calendar and a life lived intentionally observing the Christian calendar is that our resolution always stays the same if you make New Year's resolutions. And it's this. We are to always be preparing. We are to prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts. We are to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of the Savior at Christmas, but also we are preparing ourselves to keep on waiting for his return. And this word preparation is one that, as I've been reading through this text over the last few weeks, it's a word that's been sticking out to me because a few weeks ago, 
to give credit where credit is due, Ethan and I were hanging out and we were chatting about things like, you know, life and church and work and ministry and all those good things. And a part of that topic, a part of topic of that conversation revolved around not only this theme of preparation, but really this idea of cultivation, right? Like in gardening, like you cultivate a garden. And so when the topic of Advent came up, Ethan mentioned how it would be kind of neat to see if this idea of cultivation would actually work with our Advent text, with our Advent themes. And so while Ethan did not help me prep the sermon, he did turn me on to this idea. So I'm going to play around with the themes a little bit in the sermon time. We're going to keep the themes the same that we always do traditionally, but I'm going to play around with them during the sermon time. So if it goes over well, it was all my idea, and if it falls flat on its faith, it's all Ethan's fault. Right? That's, how, that's how it's going to work. But, but in all seriousness, no, no. It, Ethan and I were having a great conversation, and this came up. So in relation to that conversation, I thought it would be intriguing to see if these other themes that might complement the traditional themes that we're used to. And so preparation is actually a very typical Advent theme that sometimes the candle of hope or one of these other candles can also be called the candle of preparation or yeah, preparation or even prophecy sometimes. But as it relates to cultivation and gardening, I kept coming back to this principle of the idea of tilling, like tilling the soil, right? So tilling will kind of be our sub theme for today if you're wanting to use a gardening theme or a cultivation theme because you see Advent, and some of us in here have heard this almost every year, Advent is also known as a little Lent, right? The colors are the same. Uh, We observe it in a certain way. Like Lent, we wait. Like Lent, we fast. We're reminded that we're fasting. And like Lent, in Advent, we also pray. Except the thing with Advent is that we are reminded our fast, we are reminded that our fast has been 2,000 years long, as David reminded us a minute ago. We have been fasting from our groom. But just because we're waiting doesn't mean that we are to be idle. Right? Advent, our Advent waiting does not encourage idleness in the church. Instead, we're reminded that we are to be preparing. We are to be preparing the way of the Lord, preparing our hearts as if tilling the soil. And so as, as we enter our new year of the Christian calendar, we begin with hearts that need their soil to be tilled. They've been lying dormant through the off-season, quote-unquote. They need to be stirred up for planting like we would do every spring. Because as David read a few moments ago from Matthew 24, or excuse me, Lila read from Matthew 24 a few moments ago, we must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. And so while we may not know when Christ will return, we do know what some of the outcomes will look like. And that's what Isaiah helps us with today. And so what I want to do here. And I'm grateful that the verse numbers are actually in our bulletins this week because I want to both begin and end with verse 5. Not so much to bookend the text, but rather to help us frame this whole text as a call to action for this new Christian year as, as we look at our new year resolutions in the Christian year. And so Isaiah writes this in verse 5. He says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, if you need a New Year's resolution, I think that's probably one of the best ones you can come up with, right? Come and let us walk together in the light of the Lord. But, but here what we have, we have a call to action. We have a call to walk in the ways of God or to frame it within this Advent theme of tilling. It is a call for our hearts to be tilled and to be stirred up to hope in the coming day of the Lord by coming together in order to walk together in the light and law of God. 
But this is also God. What he's doing here is he's calling his people to a new way of thinking. God is calling us to a new way of discernment so that our worldview and our perspective on his work and how he has related to us would be framed properly by his standards. He's calling us as his people to reorient our thinking based upon how he has worked in the past, but also based upon how he is continuing to work in the present and how he promises he will also work in the future. And really, we can see each of those principles, past, present, and future, in verses 2, 3, and 4 of this text. And so that's how we're going to look at this today. And so he begins in verse 2. Again, verse 1 is just giving us the understanding that this is coming from Isaiah. His father is Amos, and he sees this word concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so here in verse 2, he begins by describing for us as the church what is really now a past reality. He writes this. He says, it shall come to pass... In the latter days, past there is not your key word, right? Now, we understand that it's going to happen, but that's not your key word. He goes on. It comes to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. So let's note a few things here in this verse about this past reality as we begin First, he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. There's your key phrase. This tells us, by, by saying latter days, this tells us that this entire text should be framed eschatologically or end times focused. This, eschatological is just a big word that means the end times, right? So from our brief stint a few weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we know that there's a couple of things about the end times that we need to keep in mind. One is that we should not become so overly stressed about the end times that it cripples our effectiveness to do the work that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But the second thing that we saw, especially in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, is that we're not to be so focused on the end times that we have an excuse to then become idle. This had happened in Thessalonica. Now, with our reminder every year in Advent that we continue to wait on Christ to return, you can see there's a temptation to be idle. But remember, our Advent waiting does not encourage idleness. And, and, and this is because really the first Sunday of Advent, again, as, as David and Lila and Charlotte helped us with a moment ago, the first Sunday of Advent is always, always focused on the second Advent of Christ, that he will return and that we can have hope in his return. But here's the thing. He still hasn't returned. We're sitting here. It's 2022. He's not back yet. So how is verse 2 in this text a past reality if he is talking about the end times, if the latter days means end times? It's because these latter days, these end times days, began with the first advent of Christ. So next week, as, as the candle is lit and as we read from Matthew 3, we will read from John the Baptist. He tells the people of Israel, he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus himself proclaims after his temptation in the wilderness, he comes out of the wilderness and says, The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. And this understanding of the latter days beginning with Jesus' first advent is a constant theme that continues through the rest of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, quotes Joel chapter 2, where Joel prophesies, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. This has happened, 
and it continues to happen. In Hebrews 1, we read at the very beginning, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In 1 John 2, 18, John the apostle writes, he says, Children, it is now the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore know that it is the last hour. One of the fathers even wrote here, he says, The whole time of the new law, from the coming of Christ until the end of the world, is rightly called the last days in Scripture, because no other age shall come after it, only eternity. And so the point is this, for us as the church, the point is this. The last days are here. They've begun. And our hearts need to be tilled and to be stirred up in a reminder of our hope, which now turns not to the revealing of Christ as the Messiah or Jesus as the Messiah, but rather to his return because his kingdom has already been inaugurated by his first advent and by his death and by his resurrection from the grave. And this fact Isaiah helps us with even more as he gets into the imagery of verse 2. Because he goes on and he says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days, now that we know that they are here, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. So since we understand then that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by the first advent of Christ and his death and his resurrection, we also know that the church herself has been established by the same work. So here's where we get to start having fun, right, with interpreting imagery. Because both the fathers and the reformers, and even our Eastern Orthodox friends, have two different understandings of what this mountain should be or could be. They th- uh, depending on who it is, they say it is either Christ himself or it's the church. So Cyril of Jerusalem writes, he says, Isaiah calls the church a mountain. Augustine tells us, he says, the central place that all people come to is Christ because he is at the center. And then Calvin, so jumping forward 1,500 years, Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah, believes that the mountain and the house are both a reference to the church. But then our Orthodox friends say this mountain is a symbol of the church which will proclaim God's law to all Gentiles. Because in the, in the Septuagint, which is what they use here at the end of verse 2, it says all the Gentiles shall flow to the mountain of God. But I think we can rightly ask this question here. Why are we splitting hairs? Right? Why not both? Why can't both be true at the same time? Because one father writes here, he even says this. He says, the mountain is Christ and the house of the God of Jacob is the church towards which the concourse of the nations and the assembly of all peoples are moving. And then in Romans 6, Paul reminds us that we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We talked about this in Sunday school with baptism. But Paul is stressing that our identity is now hidden in Christ. And he stresses this explicitly to the Colossians in chapter 3. He says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So interpreting this imagery this way as if the mountain is both Christ and the church, it does not make us Christ But it does stress that our unity and our singular identity are in Christ. Christ has already come in the flesh. He has been crucified. He has died. He has been raised. But he has also ascended. And so in the meantime, his presence continues on earth 
through his bride, through his church, by the Holy Spirit. And this is why Isaiah proclaims then in this verse, he says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Using very figurative language, he's telling us that the church is the highest institution on the planet. Because if he's speaking literally about Mount Zion, he's totally wrong. Because Zion is not the highest of the mountains, not even in Israel. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. I think Mount Everest is the highest mountain on the planet. So I think I could be wrong, but I think it is. So the point is, is Mount Zion is not literally the highest mountain on the planet. So this is very figurative. But the mountain of God is the highest mountain because it has been chosen by God. By the death and resurrection and commission of the Lord Jesus, the church has been established as the highest of the institutions on earth. Because from the church, the law of God is proclaimed. And from the church, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, the word of the Lord goes forth. And as the word of Christ goes out, we read here in this verse, by a miraculous work of God, a river of mankind flows up a mountain in order to worship the one true God. This is a past reality that has been fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled. But then this illustration continues into verse 3, and we notice how Isaiah then, at least for us in understanding this through Christ and the church, this now moves on to a present focus. He says this in verse 3, So the nation shall flow to the church and to Christ. And then he goes on, he says, And many people shall come, and they will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He says, all nations shall flow up to the mountain of God, and many people shall come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we know many people have come, and many people continue to come. This began at Pentecost, and it continues today. But Notice they say three specific things here that I think are really helpful for us in understanding this as a present reality. He says, the first they say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Another way of stating this, as we've already seen, is come, let us go up to Christ and let us go up to his church. And what this is, this is an encouragement for us to call one another and to call, honestly, those that we meet around us to come up to the mountain with us. As we are flowing along the river of life, come, come with us. Come up the mountain of God. Come, to the, come up to the house of the God of Jacob. And as it relates to Advent, think of what, again, this first Sunday always represents. We're preparing for the birth of Christ in Advent, but we're also looking forward to his return. And so what this proclamation does then is that it defines our commission given to us by Christ in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This is our proclamation. We proclaim, come up with us to Christ. Come up and covenant with Christ, with us, and with one another. The second thing they say here is they say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This is really the second part of the Great Commission, if you think about it. Go call them, but make them disciples. Make them disciples by teaching them what we have already been taught. Because God's plan has always been 
that all of humanity would hear the word and they would hear the work of the Lord and that they would believe it and that they would walk in his ways. But then third, they stress this. And this is really an important requirement that we cannot miss. So come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths because, or for, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord will come from Jerusalem. In the Hebrew, this phrasing of this portion of the verse, really what it's doing is it's actually helping us denote the exclusivity of what's going on here. This is very, this is very exclusive language. This is not all-encompassing inclusive language. This is exclusive language, meaning what they are saying is from out of Zion only shall come the law of the Lord. And out of Zion and Jerusalem only shall the word of God come forth. Matthew Henry is helpful here. He says this. He says, Isaiah is referring very specifically to the new covenant law of the Messiah. He writes this. He says, the gospel is the law and the law of faith. It is the word of the Lord that goes forth from Zion. Theodoret of Seir writes this, and I love how he says this. He says, clearly, as if everybody should just pick up on this immediately. Clearly, Isaiah is referring to the new covenant, he says. He says, clearly, Isaiah is referring to the new covenant where the law was first given to the apostles and then it was delivered to all peoples. And then he says, but this term word, it is a title given to the message of the gospel. Not God the Word, but the message of God the Word. Zion is not where God the Word was from, but where he taught the message, where he taught the Word. And so what this tells us is this tells us in the here and now, in our already, in our already not yet life, is that while there is a river of humanity from every tribe, tongue, nation, and culture that's flowing up the mountain of God into the house of the God of Jacob, They are all coming up the mountain of God by the same exclusive means, the person, work, and message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the soil of our hearts are being tilled this new year, this Advent season, as they're being stirred up for the coming Christian new year, we are reminded that the person, work, and message of Christ is the only means by which all of humanity may be redeemed and the only means by which we may ascend the mountain of God. But then finally, here in verse 4, if there is a past fulfillment in verse 2 and a present reality in verse 3, and then as prophecy, as Isaiah is, there obviously needs to be a future looking forward. And so he says this. He, speaking of God, in our case speaking of Christ, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. And neither shall they learn war anymore. So here's really where this idea of cultivation themes really kind of began to crop up. No pun intended. Because you read this aspect of plowshares and pruning hooks. And you can't can't help but start thinking. If you like to even garden on like a micro scale in a pot. You can't help but think. Well this kind of sounds like farming. right? So. So you start to get these things that come up. But here what Isaiah is doing is he's describing for us in this verse two future promises that should be sown into the soil of our hearts 
in this tilling cultivation process in this new Advent year. And the first thing is this. Judgment and the settlement of disputes between people will be completely handled by the Lord Jesus. So instead of settling national disputes as we do right now through invasions or interpersonal disputes through a lawsuit, the Lord himself will sit as judge and he will settle the disputes of the peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, really the ancient Near East in which this culture was written, the aspect of judgment is more all-encompassing than really kind of how we understand it in our own culture, right? So in our culture, when we think of judgment, we think there are laws. If you break a law, then you ne- it needs to be enforced, and a judgment needs to be rendered, right? That's how we think of judgment. And that is definitely included in the Old Testament mindset. But it goes much further because in God's plan, in God's understanding, in the way he's writing his word, This also involves the establishment of a complete cosmic governmental order. And so then the expected result and the promised result of God's word and God's judgment and God's settling of disputes that we read here in Isaiah 2-4 is the complete harmony among all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation because a better government is now in place. And so when the nations then walk in God's ways, as we read in verse 3, and when they submit to his rule and his lordship, then one of the results of the nations coming to the mountain of God and to the house of the God of Jacob and of their submitting to Christ is that all nations and all peoples will not only trust God and not only trust his lordship, but they will gladly submit to his rendering of judgment which then informs how we understand the rest of this verse, which is the other result, the promised result of the future, which is this. Jesus' judgment will transform our weapons of war into tools for peace. He He says this, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, Our instruments of war will be converted into implements of husbandry. And then reading the rest of the verse, he says, for they shall have no more occasion for war. Right? So notice, no nation will raise up a weapon against another in an act of war. But it also goes further than that because he says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, but neither shall they learn war anymore. Meaning there will be no desire for war. There will be no inclination for war. There will be no learning of warfare West Point and Annapolis are out of a job because we would be more concerned, as we have read already in verses 2 and 3, with learning the law of God and submitting to Christ's righteous judgment. Meaning that the Spirit of the Lord will be at work within God's people, people who have come up to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob, to learn his ways and to walk in his path, the Holy Spirit will remove our reasons for war. Or, as we read this morning in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I say these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so now that the soil of our hearts have been tilled and have been cultivated for this new year, let's go back to verse 5 one more time. Let's end it. One more time in verse 5. 
And look again at this call to action, at this New Year's resolution, if you will. And he says this, O house of Jacob, church, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So as we set out upon this new Christian year and begin this Advent season, we are being reminded that the tilling of the soil of our hearts is to stir us up in order to transform our thinking about who God is and what has been accomplished in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now, thankfully and joyfully, this is not only something that has been worked out in the past, but it is still being worked and it will be worked, reminding us that our hope is in Christ fully and completely. Hoping in his atoning work on our behalf, hope in his resurrection gives us hope of our own. And as we wait and as we watch and as we pray, Our hearts are being tilled and stirred up because we have hope of his return. So as we come to the table and as we give thanks for what Christ has done, let us together come up to the mountain of God and to the house of the God of Jacob in order that we may be taught and that we may walk in his paths and that we may walk in his light. Thanks be to God.